Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal profession. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. And uh, I have been playing over the past couple of days with the new meta Twitter clone <laughs> called Threads. And uh, so far, it's yeah. it's not too bad. It's, uh, it's pretty simple, but I think that's probably the best way out of the box there. So Marlene, I, I, I don't think you've joined in yet, but uh, uh, I not expect yet. to see you soon. Yep. Yep. Will do. We have an episode today that isn't about large language models and Gen AI, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, it's still about data, but today we're focusing on how firms can do the best job possible to protect theirs and their clients. Law firms spend a great deal of time and money on security measures. They invest a lot of certification, establishment of proper protocol, and training. But as we see in the headlines, even all this may not be enough. In April, both TechCrunch and Bloomberg Law reported that Proskauer Rose exposed client M&A data for six months because a vendor they used to create an information portal on a third-party cloud-based storage platform failed to properly secure it. Yeah, and I think there was actually mm-hmm. another Bloomberg article that came out last night that uh, expanded that to a, to a third firm. But, you know, if you think this is just a risk of doing business in our, you know, this high-tech world that we live in, you would be wrong. There are services and technologies that can even, you know, further reduce the risk by monitoring and preventing such errors. And our guests today are going to speak about it. So we would like to welcome... Jordan Ellington, founder of Session Guardian, Oren Lieb, Vice President of Growth and Partnership there at Session Guardian, and Tricia Sirkar, Partner and Co-Privacy Officer at Catton. We'd like to welcome you all to the show. So Jordan, Oren, Tricia, welcome to the Geek and Review. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Jordan, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you came to develop Session Guardian? So my career started in the early 90s at Wagachal, New York, uh, and continued for the la- for the next 30 years, um, focusing on what I call secure document collaboration systems. This is basically sharing sensitive documents on extranets with outside parties. And that resulted in me having an ongoing uh, focus on cybersecurity and making sure that only the right parties had access to sensitive information. Uh, Many of my colleagues for a while uh, landed uh, jobs at other parties over the years. Whenever they needed to build a special matter-specific application, they would give me a call. Often this would result in a a new client. And this is really the story that led to the creation of Session Guardian. About five years ago, uh, I started working with an Amlaw 50 firm uh, to develop a security system that they could uh, use with e-discovery vendors, uh, specifically providing contract attorney staffing agencies. And uh, they had found that there were a variety of security postures. Uh, Some staffing agencies worked on-premise. Some staffing agencies uh, had uh, remote users. Some staffing agencies rented uh, space in a Regis uh, center and their computers. So there was a significant cybersecurity disparity across the agencies. So the goal of Session Guardian was simply to normalize the security posture so regardless of the agency uh, that the firm was working with, they would be able to have a a high security standard. Uh, So we realized the technology could be leveraged to provide secure access to sensitive information anywhere. So we pursued a plan to continue that vision and marry facial authentication as a way of validating that the physical 
user logging in was the intended user. So ultimately, we wanted to create a system that would enable firms and corporations to engage staff uh, securely remotely uh, with, an, uh, with an appropriate information security posture anywhere. To be honest, there was pushback. So when we suggested session guarding could be used on sensitive matters remotely, uh, we were told no. Sensitive matters could only be worked on the premise in a supervised document review setting. And then COVID came, the phones started ringing, and the rest is history. I'd like to say that COVID accelerated the future. At some point, we would have reached this work from anywhere environment. And uh, Session Guardian overnight became the only game in town with a solution specifically focused on addressing cyber threats of the users uh, working remotely on their home computers. And Oren, how did you get involved? Yeah, well, first of all, great to be with everyone. I would say, you know, as an attorney and legal innovation evangelists, I like to describe myself at times. Uh, what really appealed to me about Session Guardian, and frankly, the reason I came on board, is that this is truly a privacy-first company. And as Jordan mentioned, we've created technology, I think, that truly walks the walk in that regard. Um, I think we can all agree that data privacy is a fundamental and sacred right. Uh, we live in a country where a court of law recently ruled that the All Writs Act couldn't compel Apple to unlock an iPhone belonging to an accused terrorist. I mean, I think that demonstrates just how greatly we value our privacy rights. Um, that said, uh, when I first came across Session Guardian, I was ALM and I was astonished to learn that basically, you know, as, as we're moving into a remote work-based environment, any attorney on a project could come into a live session, access privileged or regulated data without anything more than an MFA to quote unquote authenticate. Now, keep in mind that anyone could share credentials with an unauthorized user, and that's a simple and common way to circumvent MFAs. Uh, users could take a screenshot or photograph sensitive data residing on their screen during the course of a doc review or translation. Basically, any scenario where they're in a remote work environment and they have access to privileged and regulated data. So, I mean, from our perspective, these are the kinds of non-negotiable security gaps that Session Guardian protects against. And ultimately, and I love this uh, about what we do, our solution enables our partners, law firms, corporations, and third-party service providers to basically go out there and hire the best talent anywhere on the planet without ever compromising security. And frankly, that's a huge net positive, not just for our customers, but the overall job market writ large. Well, we had talked a little bit about this in the introduction. Law firms spend a great deal of time and probably a lot more money on complying with security requirements and you know keeping the client's data safe as well as their own. So Trisha, I want to turn this to you. You know, what's the perception of security in the market and do you think that uh, you know we're all doing a good job? Yeah, look, you know, I can't speak to law firms generally, but um, I do know for a fact that data security and privacy is top of mind for law firms and all yeah. industries, especially as cyber attacks have increased in the pandemic. The digital economy is here to stay and just growing and the hybrid workplace, which is, it, it's still persisting. Um, you know, for law firms, keeping data security and privacy at the core of their practice is especially important because they are handling client confidential information and intellectual property. Yeah. So um, it is, I, I know it is at the core uh, of, uh, Offense culture. Yeah. And we've joked for many years here that IT's job used to be about maintaining the network. And now it's almost, you know, I, I would say probably half the job is security. 
and you're just seeing so much in you know the securities operations of the firm is it does it feel a little overwhelming to you Tricia? Look, sometimes it does. You know, we we are an Amlaw um, hundred national law firm, and you know um, our clients uh, are very varied and across all sectors. So, you know, as a data privacy and data security and IP lawyer, I have to access a lot of data of different clients across different industries. So, you know, sometimes Zscaler or other uh, network sectors won't me access certain websites, and you know, it can sometimes be a challenge. But again, I think it's um, very important to take those extra steps and get those provisions from IT security to enable access. I know we, we get frustrated because everything in light of the pandemic, um, the day has not stopped. It's a seven-day work week for most law firm associates yeah. and partners. And no. speed is important, but it, it's good to take a minute <laughs> to go and show you have the right provisions, the right access, the, right, the data is in the right people's hands. I think we all saw a, uh, a senior associate's uh, PowerPoint that talked about how just how long those weeks are <laughs> for everybody. So Jordan or Oren or both of you, um, and I'm very interested in, in hearing the answer to this this question because, you know, just we've heard so much about these certifications in the past. But, you know, why do you think ISO and SOC 2 certifications are not sufficient anymore for law firms? Thanks, Marlene. Uh, so uh, an ISO and a SOC certification means that A, you have policies and procedures, and B, that you're following them at a certain point in time. So they represent a snapshot in time. They do not represent the reality of what's happening on a matter that's outsourced to perhaps a service provider as to how that information is being treated at that point in time. And so our perspective is that ISO and SOC is the trust, right? It's to establish trust with the vendor, with the partner, that they have certain policies and procedures in place. But then we need to verify. We need to make sure that ongoing, that information is treated uh, appropriately. And, and that's, uh, that's why we suggest using technology to uh, enforce uh, these policies and procedures in real time. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. I, you know, just wanted to take a moment to talk about uh, the lawyer's ethical responsibilities around safeguarding sensitive client data. I mean, especially when that data is accessible remotely. I know it's not talking about rules of professional conduct really aren't a, a very sexy topic, and you know they sort of get dwarfed by the regulatory regimes out there and the usual suspects like GDPR, CCPA, BIPA, and a host of others. But uh, I recently came across an ABA formal opinion, 477R, and I, I want to read it verbatim. Uh, because it talks about the lawyer's responsibility when it comes to securing information. And it says, and I quote, a lawyer may be required to take special security precautions to protect against the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of client information when required by an agreement with the client or by law, or when the nature of the information requires a higher degree of security. I think that last part where a higher degree of security is triggered is always a red flag for us lawyers to heed but what does that mean, practically speaking, right? Does it really give you a prescription on how to do that? Um, it's pretty vague. Um, well, I mean, I would posit if MFAs, as we've established, aren't sufficient in authenticating credential users, for example, or safeguarding sensitive data, then lawyers need to take extra precautions with both continuous identity authentication technology 
at implementing security measures in a practical way that, that prevent things like screenshots and screen shares of sensitive data, which again, I think are, you know, we mentioned non-negotiable security gaps. So I think that becomes part of the lawyer's evolving set of obligations um, and technical competency requirements as it relates to cybersecurity, that maybe the certifications that we talked about don't comprehensively address enough. Tricia, what are some of the challenges firms face in keeping data private? I imagine the various and changing regulatory requirements in different jurisdictions are an extremely large complication. <laughs> um, do regs address the real-world problems in a practical manner? Yes, yeah, so I'll answer your first part of that question. Number one is and will consistently be um, employee-related issues, employee security threats human errors across the board in all industries and sectors are the number one reason that fail to keep private information private. Continuous employee education and training are vital. Number two, I believe, is data retention, um, particularly for US law firms. In the US, we have a culture of retaining data for longer than is necessary, and law firms maintain a lot of data. And as we're seeing these new laws, the California Consumer Privacy Act, as amended by the California Privacy Rights Act, I know there's some proposed laws by the FTC and the SEC as well regarding data retention requirements. As we see more of these laws develop, I think it's going to promote a culture in the United States of data minimization. So that's important. Um, number three, physical security, particularly in the hybrid world. I don't know, I only know of one law firm, I only know really of one Amlaw 50 law firm that's fully remote. Every Amlaw 50 law firm that I know, that's Quinn Emanuel. Every Amlaw 50 law firm or Amlaw 100 law firm I know is generally hybrid. And I, I think when you take documents home, you know, you share a house or a condo with other people, when associates have roommates in New York City, physical security is imperative. And I think, um, really, really have to educate and continuously, you know, alert employees to this, you know, make sure there's, you know, safe document destruction when data is done. You know, we all print out documents to read them as lawyers. So I definitely think data, um, physical security is another big issue, more so the in the remote world and hybrid world. I mentioned employee errors, but also insider threats, right? As we're seeing, you know, with the macroeconomic factors at play right now, we may be seeing some reductions in force and other issues that we already saw in the pandemic. But again, we're going through that cycle again, macroeconomically. Um, we've all seen the headlines about law firms doing layoffs and roofs. You want to just make sure that you don't have a disgruntled employee and all access and any kind of devices that they own are wiped clean and denied immediately. So again, tying that to employees and insider threats. And then answering the second part of your question, did the regs address the real, real world problems in a practical manner. You know, they do generally, however, it's hard for global law firms, right, that sometimes have to compete with conflicting regimes. The general data protection regulation prescribes a time limit to keep certain data. US regs require that to be kept for, for a different period of time, certain standards regarding customer data, employee data. So they can be quite conflicting. And particularly in the US, we have a patchwork of regulations, whether it's the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act for financial institutions, children's online privacy for, for companies that are in the ed tech space. Then there's 
the consumer protection laws. Now we have, I believe, the 11th state that has a consumer protection law with Oregon. So it can be challenging that the regulations can be competing and we don't always invest resources in understanding them and adopting them. But I think the biggest challenge with the regulations that we are seeing is in AI as law firms and clients are using AI more and more. We're still waiting for the regulations to really provide the proper guardrails to use AI ethically and responsibly. Yeah, we're having a hard time keeping up, right? Keeping up and <laughs> complying with, you know, um, the current privacy laws. It's yeah, it's, it's just moving too fast. And I think, um, you know, the EU has made some great developments in that area of regulation, but other jurisdictions are, are still mm. catching up. So I think AI is really an area where the regulations are lagging. Mm-hmm. I know we're really good at advising our clients on how to comply with these regulations. And just in your experience or, you know, as you've talked with peers, are law firms good at at taking their own medicine on this? Are we good at at complying with these regulations? I think so. I really think so. Um, You know, I can only speak to Catton and we have a great team. So um, it is front and center um, a priority. I'm in regular contact with my general counsel and my CISO and IT security as a co-privacy officer of the firm, also my HIPAA officers. So yeah, absolutely. You know, we've, we've heard the headlines, but ha- there are a lot of law firms. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you've mentioned a couple of names. There are only a couple, one hand. Right. So I, I do think generally the more sophisticated and more 200 law firms um, or bu- sophisticated boutique law firms yep. um, do a good job. Yeah. Well, we've we've kind of set the stage here on where we are in in the industry and kind of what the the floor should be on you know complying with regulations and security issues that we should all be looking for. Um, but you know the reason we brought Jordan and Oren on here was to talk about how do we go above and beyond what just is the basics here. So um, I'm going to turn it over to the two of you and describe how. Session Guardian specifically addresses things like cybersecurity gaps. You know, what are some additional protections that you provide beyond that floor that we just set? So, so you know, kind of give us some uh, a, a real base introduction to Session Guardian, and then uh, you know, kind of tell us what it is that makes you guys unique. Absolutely, thanks, Greg. I think the the, the first thing to address also is before a cybersecurity gap is a cybersecurity posture and who's actually responsible for for cybersecurity of your client. So the the client will have their set of cybersecurity rules and postures and certainly they will be coordinating and working with a trusted law firm that also certainly has a high level of cybersecurity postures. But what we've noticed is that as there is what I'd call a delegation of responsibility downstream to a service provider, for example, from a practical perspective, they do not have the the budget and the IT resources, at least most of them do, that the uh, clients and law firms have. And then further downstream, they will often hire a contractor uh, who will often be working on their own device, their BYOD device. And certainly they have zero budget from a cybersecurity posture. When we're looking at a cybersecurity gap, we try to look at it from the bottom up. Where is the risk? 
and the risk is at the end of the line. It's who's actually accessing information. And, and we will look at some very, very basic things such as can a user take screenshots of the information they see on their screen? Can they copy and paste? Can they accidentally share this information on an evite, on, on, on a web meeting? And you'd be surprised to find out that most vendors will ask for a direction from their clients as to whether to enforce screen share and screenshot protection. Uh, but I would submit that most, most clients that are engaging vendors probably think that screen share and screenshot protection is table stakes. So that is what we try to provide. We try to provide a minimum basis of security so that if even someone didn't think about it, that security is, is there. Yeah, just to add a little bit uh, to what Jordan was saying, it sets the stage kind of on some alarming stats with, with regard to cyber hacking and some of the use cases that may or may not surprise you that go beyond just, um, you know, your run-of-the-mill document review project or source code review project. So Bloomberg released an article, um, you know, basically uh, it was a report uh, from Checkpoint Research. The rate of global weekly cyber attacks rose by 7% in the first financial quarter of this year as compared with the same quarter last year. Organizations uh, face an average of over 1,200 attacks <laughs> weekly. One out of every 40 of those attacks targeted a law firm or an insurance carrier. Um, and more than a quarter of law firms in a 2022 ABA survey said that they'd experienced a data breach up 2% from the previous year. Um, so pretty alarming set of statistics there when it comes to cyber hacking. Um, in terms of use cases, I mean, I, I know that we've been known as a company to secure doc reviews and source code reviews, but our offering, our security solution uh, extends to any scenario where sensitive or regulated data is exposed in a remote environment. Uh, so that would include, for example, things like data breach matters. That's an obvious one. M&A um, and IP due diligence matters, contract review matters, third-party call centers, outsourced IT firms. And even in the education space, remote learning and testing, um, we're even seeing a growing instance of interview fraud where, you know, the people that show up to work weren't actually the ones that interviewed for the position. So naturally, our solutions sparked a lot of interest across regulated industries like the financial sector, healthcare, life sciences, and so on. Recently, we met the head of global cybersecurity for a major North American bank, and they said that the last 10 breach incidents were actually triggered by shoulder surfing and photographs of sensitive data People on again. computer monitors. <laughs> just what Trisha said. Yes, exactly. And the, recently, I think everyone's probably seen the Coca-Cola IP theft story where a Chinese operative snapped photos of a series of trade secrets and formulas on her computer screen that she was going to use for a copycat operation in China. Um, she found her way around all of the military intelligence-grade data tracking software by simply pulling out this thing called a mobile device and snapping photos. It was just that easy. Um, so for example, you know, our mobile detection software was designed to prevent these kind of instances from occurring. So just some practical examples in terms of the use cases that go beyond legal and into an enterprise-wide environment. Jordan and, and Oren, can, can you explain what you see as the role of Session Guardian in ensuring business continuity and minimizing the impact of cybersecurity incidents on law firms' operations? Yeah, absolutely. So cyber hacking has become a, it's not just a question of continuity, it's a question of survival. So it, it is a threat to a business when 
uh, their information or their clients' information get gets breached. And this is compounded now with uh, a work from anywhere environment where you're no longer sure if, if the person you have authorized to look at information is in fact that user. What Session Guardian tries to do is establish a, a physical security posture regardless of where the user is located and ensures that they're coming in from a known device at the appropriate time from the appropriate location. And by keeping these types of controls and providing a uh, security log that allows you to verify what areas of a system a person has been in, what levels of access did they have, where did they log in? Were they by themselves or were they having, or did they have someone looking at the screen with them, for example? These types of controls greatly limit the risk of a cyber breach. And when it occurs, it provides you a roadmap as to what areas of the business may have been breached, uh, you know, by where and, and by, by whom. So, I mean, is this, does this mean I can't like log in at like, you know, four in the morning and start, start working? <laughs> you know, are they going to be like, hmm, why is she on so early? <laughs> yeah, th that's exactly right. So, so that really depends. So it could, it could be an observed behavior. So perhaps if it just starts happening before a large round of layoffs, what's happening? Is there data being copied or, or is something strange happening? So visibility into at the end of the day, human behavior that is not normal is what helps uh, prevent or limit the scope of a breach. And do you do this in a way that is seamless on the end user side? Um, because I can see, you know, if we if the security guy had his druthers, you know, uh, we may not be able to get, to actually log in and, and do our work, you know, unless we, you know, do 10 things before we log in. So how do you, how do you kind of build that level of security in, but not hamper the actual work productivity of, of the user? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, so the important thing is to tailor or customize the security posture based on the information that's being looked at. Um, and so, you know, in this way, you can achieve a context-sensitive security where through, you know, most of your uh, transactions, maybe you don't need to have the webcam only on, or maybe you only need to have it once. Uh, and then as you graduate into more sensitive information, you can dynamically be prompted to go through additional uh, checks. The good news is that a lot of these checks are automatic. So, for example, where you're logging in from, what time you're logging in, at, um, you know, can you perform a screen share, a screenshot? All these things happen automatically. Do you have an, a malware uh, running? Do you have a antivirus running? These are all automatic passive checks that don't take any time. So, you know, it's really important to balance, you know, the security requirements that the firm has, your obligations to your clients with the practicality of doing work. So, you know, appropriate configuration, we do this as part of our service, we will consult with our clients to provide a, a recommended set of security policies in the system based on uh, what needs to be protected. So we've kind of laid the, the groundwork here on how to prevent any kind of cybersecurity, but as everyone knows, it's probably not a matter of if, but when 
this happens uh, to a law firm. So what specific features or functionalities in Session Guardian assist law firms you know, in an incident response and in the remediation after uh, a cybersecurity breach happens? By far the most important feature that Session Guardian provides is an extremely granular audit trail of, again, who was logged in, where, when, what type of device, and what were they doing? What was happening in their environment? So that, that audit trail paints a picture or a roadmap as to what may have <laughs> happened very, very quickly. I think the scariest thing that can happen in a cyber breach event is just not knowing what was hit. And so understanding the, you know, where that attack occurred is helpful. Secondly, by using technology such as Session Guardian, you greatly limit the freedom of movement of what happens when you get inside. If you have security set up properly, you know, zero trust is kind of like a the, the, the new buzzword. Well, you know, if in order to get that credential and start doing something that's extremely sensitive, you need to show your face and show that it's actually you, you make it that much harder for uh, an attacker to run wild in an organization. Lastly, you know, if, if it comes time to pay the piper and there are damages, being able to demonstrate that you took all the reasonable steps that you could have to limit, and there's an audit trail that shows that you have these security uh, features in place. And I'm not a lawyer, but I, I would think that that would help limit your, your liability in these types of uh, cases. Warren? I am a lawyer, but I would definitely defer to Trisha on, on this one. Um, I mean, I, I, would, I would presume that you're right, you know, that those would be mitigating factors. Um, some things just, you know, as, as Greg said, you know, it's, it's not a matter of if, but when these attacks occur and liability is going to be based on whether or not you took all the reasonable precautions in terms of technical competency and resources to, to prevent that as best you could, knowing the software environment is not perfect, but I would definitely defer to Trisha on more specifics on that if, if she'd like to delve into it. In terms of, you know, if you're doing everything by the book and dotting your I's and crossing your T's, in terms of if any liability that you might experience when you um, do face a breach, you know, there's, of course, there's, you know, um, notification costs, ID protection costs, and all those kind of costs that most companies will provide, um, not all. I believe only one or two state laws in the U.S. require it, but it, that's really a commercial decision. But again, given the amount of law firms there are and how important reputation is and goodwill is, you know, I do think that's where that, that comes into play. So really, I think the biggest issue is really those kind of costs, any um, mitigation costs, you know, forensics always costs a lot of money to, to do a deep dive and a root cause analysis and then the reputational costs mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah. that might impact the law firm. However, again, um, it's not if, it's when you do it. So it really, um, those reputational costs will be minimized if you're doing everything right. Obviously, you know, consumers can bring um, a private right of action under the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, however, if reasonable, it's based on a reasonableness standard, based on the information security practices. So yes, there's a cost to defend that, but generally, hopefully, um, you know, the firm will come out on the right side. 
And of course, you know, there's other penalties and fines that can be imposed. But again, when we're seeing um, those kind of enforcement actions, we really, if, you know, the Attorney Generals of California, New York, the FTC, and other, the GDPR enforcement tracker, they all provide kind of examples of what those fines and penalties look like. So that can give you a good understanding of where it's based on negligence or um, no fault of the um, company. So we, we touched a little bit about WFA earlier and, and Jordan, you know, that's a, another area where the cybersecurity landscape has changed, um, you know, because we, we have this incredible need for mobile access, you know, to be able to work from, from anywhere. So why is multi-factor authentication no longer adequate in this evolving landscape? Thanks, Perlene. So that's a really interesting question, and it's uh, it's a subject that's I spent quite a bit of time thinking about. Uh, I just want to take a, a step back down down memory lane in terms of information security standards when we just had usernames and passwords. So we had usernames and passwords. That's how you accessed sensitive information. And then someone realized that, well, we need to have complex passwords. They need to have a certain level of complexity. So, okay, now we have usernames and slightly more complex passwords. And everyone couldn't figure out how to create that complex password. And then we figured out that that wasn't enough either. We need to have an MFA because there are ways to even find out what a complex password is. So then we had usernames, complex passwords, and MFAs. And then COVID happened and everybody started working remotely. And what we found is that that MFA was really designed to protect my password from being used uh, by someone else. But if I wanted to actually have someone else use my password, I can give them my MFA code. And so from a remote work scenario, the MFA by itself no longer gives the assurance of whoever is uh, responsible for protecting the information that that the individual using the MFA is actually the user that you expect them to be. You know, we think that the next step now is to provide uh, uh, assurance of correct uh, usage of, of, of the information. Who is the user? Is, pardon the cliche, the answer is staring us in the face. It's the face. It's the person. The person needs to become the factor of authentication to access information. And so, you know, we built a business around it. We have adoption. We think that this is the appropriate way to secure information remotely and ensure that you know uh, who's about to log on to a secure system. And Tricia, let's get your opinion on that from your view. You know, are there, you know, the regulations being updated? Is there or is there not kind of this clear guidance from, from the regulations on, on what, uh, what, law firms and, and clients should be doing? Yeah, look, I think um, in terms of privacy and data security regulations, uh, it is quite clear. However, you know, they're not always, um, they sometimes conflict, right? And they're also, they're expensive to comply with, especially for smaller law firms or, you know, a smaller, even a solo practice. Law firms really need to take the time, like any industry, um, you know, it's not just a checkbox compliance. It really, you know, it has to be a culture, privacy by design, especially, again, given the digital economy that we live in, the hybrid world, and just how the culture has shipped from the pandemic. 
to this kind of, especially in the US, with with this um, mainstay hybrid world. Again, I'm going to reiterate it again and again, employees are still our biggest assets, but also our biggest threats. So any kind of work from home um, policies and procedures need to be regularly updated and enforced. And those, those um, you know, penali- penalties for non-compliance should include termination. When developing these policies and procedures for work from home, where it's complete remote, where it's hybrid, where it's in the office, you know, legal, IT and HR need to work this together. California employees will have different rights to New York employees. Yeah. We have law firm partners that have worked between London and New York or Chicago and London. You know, different countries require different things. This is a dynamic process that has to be constantly reviewed and updated, not only for the laws, but also the changes in the threat landscape and has to involve senior management, leadership, legal, IT and HR. Tricia, we've we've talked about the, the need to follow regulations, the need to be aware of ethical um, considerations. We've talked about using technology to prevent things from happening when they happen. But that's only part of it, right? Um, you know, general counsel, risk, IT departments, you know, they still have to address things like terms and conditions with vendors, ownership of security keys, you know, building strong remote file inclusion and master service agreements. So from a negotiation standpoint, what are some things to look out for when negotiating with a vendor? Yeah, no, look, again, I think most law firms will tell you, especially um, the larger law firms um, nationally and global law firms, typically if a vendor is handling personal data or confidential data, it goes through an IT security process. Typically won't even get to legal to review the document until it, it goes through that process. If a firm doesn't do that, they should absolutely do that. <laughs> okay. And then in terms of when it gets to legal, when we negotiate the MSA and the provisions in that MSA, the law sets the minimum requirements. Other provisions in the GDPR or the California Consumer Privacy Act or Graham Leach Bliley Act or HIPAA are commercial provisions. Um, that includes, you know, who bears a cost for data breaches, audit, who pays for an audit. When negotiating these agreements, these are commercial requirements. You should appropriately allocate risk based on which side of the agreement you're in. You know, the law firm can be the client or it can be the service provider. So depending on that relationship, your risk posture will change. And, you know, you would obviously um, wouldn't negotiate terms and conditions favorable to you, but that includes limitations on liability, indemnification, audit rights, in addition to what the regulation requires, additional commercial requirements. And then you also want to, um, I always um, in- ensure that any vendor that we use for my clients of Bocatan have minimum cybersecurity insurance requirements in addition to other types of insurance and get those certificates of insurance. Those are really the big ones, you know, limitation of liability, um, indemnification, insurance, and then you know, appropriately tailoring, you know, communication when there is a breach and who pays, what's the cost, how is that quarterbacked? That should all be in the MSA. So this is the time when we ask our crystal ball question to everybody. So looking out at the next two to five years, um, tell us what 
changes or challenges lay in store for us in the area of cybersecurity. Trish, do you want to start? Sure. Like, again, number one is not going to change. It hasn't changed in my career, employees. <laughs> so we just we just have to consist with training and um, delivering education and making it at a very um, rudimentary level that all generations can process and understand that and also tailoring um, employee training based on the work from home, the, the hybrid, and they're complete in the office model. So again, I cannot emphasize that at all. That will not go away. The second biggest issue, and we mentioned it again before, is the ethical use of AI and how we use AI and cybersecurity in a compliant way and managing privacy as well. So AI is a hot topic. Um, so I think it's going to be in cyber, privacy, in machine learning, everything. So Jordan, uh, same to you, the crystal ball question. What do, what do you see as a change or a challenge for the next uh, two to five years? I, I would say that the, the, the change is going to be also within the next few months, let alone the next two to five years. And I would say that the unethical use of AI in hacking is by far the biggest danger and threat to cybersecurity today. And we're going to see increasing instances of AI impersonating uh, individuals, even within an organization, you know, sending an email from the CEO that sounds like came from the CEO with topics and a click on this and it's game over. Mm -hmm. I think the importance of establishing uh, that a person is real is going to become ever more important. And I think we're also going to see a separation between uh, personal emails and work emails and matter-specific emails that perhaps do not include the ability to email in and out of a closed group of people. Just because it's going to be too simple to have uh, an email impersonating a topic that you think is uh, relevant, you click on it and then you have a breach. And Oren, how about you? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I definitely agree with Tristan and Jordan's insights on the future of cyber threats and the increasing role of AI-powered hacks and deep fakes. Um, you know, look, we know the pandemic hyper-accelerated digital transformation without any time to prepare. Uh, but I think we need to step back and think about how lawyers who handle some of the most sensitive data out there need to step up their cyber defense game. I mean, it's no longer voluntary, it's obligatory. You know, we've, we've seen ABA formal opinions about this that suggest that lawyers need to take special security precautions when it comes to sensitive data that includes privileged, confidential, and regulated information. And as lawyers, we just can't simply pass the buck to cybersecurity engineers and experts in the event that there's a data breach. I mean, I understand there's no such thing as a perfect cyber defense, but we need to demonstrate as lawyers that we've undertaken all reasonable efforts to safeguard data. Um, that includes technology and tools and methodologies. Uh, that need to be employed. Um, and our clients, the regulatory enforcement agencies out there, and even the attorney ethics boards, they won't accept inexcusable neglect in this regard. And by the way, uh, this isn't just a call to action for big law players out there. All attorneys, regardless of their firm size or ranking, are equally accountable. And that includes law companies as well. LSPs, LSPs, all of them must comply with data privacy regs and RPCs where applicable. I mean, just think about this. Virtually every day, multiple times a day, privileged and sensitive information becomes exposed 
to subcontracted attorneys working in BYOD environments somewhere out there in the world. Uh, when that happens, the level of data protection exponentially recedes, and there's a cyber hacker waiting to pounce. I don't mean to sound overly dramatic, but we already covered some of the alarming stats earlier in the conversation on this. What we've noticed is there's a lack of cybersecurity awareness amongst attorneys. So to that end, Session Guardian's not only committed to providing a robust cybersecurity defense, but also educational awareness. Um, and I think that's the best way to tackle some of these issues that are present day and in the future. To that end, we'll be offering free on-demand CLE courses that fulfill mandatory cybersecurity CLE credits. Um, and for more information, feel free to ping us at CLE at sessionguardian.com. Yeah. Well, if it does play out, I, I hope most of the firms learn from the mistakes of others than, than from their own mistakes. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, Jordan Ellington, uh, Oren Lieb, and Tricia Sarkar for coming on and taking the time to speak with us. Thank, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And of course, our audience, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Uh, everyone, uh, Trisha, where, if they, if they want to reach out to you, where can they find you? Sure, you can find me on my law firm bio page or LinkedIn. And Jordan? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And Oren? You can also find me on LinkedIn. I'll make sure we get all those LinkedIn links. <laughs> LinkedIn it is. <laughs> Listeners, if you want to leave us uh, some feedback, you can also leave us a voicemail on our Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7821. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. All right. Well, thank you, Jerry, and uh, talk to you later, Marlene. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.